Alright, welcome back. Before we get into our study, um, we've taken a look at the doctrine of rebound previously, which we've identified as confession of known sin to God alone through Christ alone, and that this confession allows God to restore us to fellowship through cleansing us from that one and all sin that we've uh, trespassed into. So let's take 30 seconds or so, identify whether we need to use the priesthood that we've been granted through Christ and through personal confession of sin to God. Uh, if you don't need to, uh, if you just be respectful of the 30 seconds or so, till uh, I open with prayer and uh, let's begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and the word of truth which guides us into your plan of salvation and drives us through a spiritual maturation process that you've developed to be dependent upon you in all things. May we choose to recognize our dependencies, choose to reject anything that we depend upon other than you, allowing you to guide us and direct us and give us those things which we need during the day through your grace provision. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> all right, we're looking back in the book of James and we're going to start verse 18 tonight. But just as a quick reminder that we're looking at this concept of true spirituality in the book of James, and right now we're taking a look at that as evidence through faith in action, or otherwise, in other words, your dependency producing an action. When you depend upon something, it has to produce an action. So true spirituality, the first evidence James gives towards that is having faith that produces action, and that's again a dependency in something to accomplish an act. <clears throat> in order to facilitate an easier understanding of the previous studies, which we have accomplished in James 1, 16 to 17. It's necessary to introduce and establish a term which relates to all things which God has provided out of the goodness of His grace. And the term grace provision is that term, and it will suffice to summarize any physical or spiritual object which God has provided to humanity and or the believers. <clears throat> so this term grace provision, we're going to use this... Um, hopefully a lot more often. It'll save a lot of words for me in, in trying to explain a couple of things. Um, but here's a couple of things that we've already seen thus far in our study of the book of James chapter 1. He's identified the mechanics given to believers by God and His grace, which are necessary for the defeat of testation within their lives. Uh, this, these, some of these things have included in verse 17a, the identification of God as being the source of good things given and complete gifts. 17b, the lights which God has created, the sun, moon, and stars, as examples of God's merchandise, the product that he produces, and the quality of it. And number three, in verse 17c, the immutable and uneclipsable character of God. And yes, uneclipsable is a made-up word, but it carries the most accurate connotation of what the Greek language apparently is explaining. So these are three things that we've looked at in, in recent study in James which is about probably a month ago at this point, six to five, four to six weeks ago. Uh, but when we're talking about the term grace provision, we're talking about those things which God has given because of his attitude of grace towards us, things that we need but we don't deserve, um, such as <clears throat> um, the character of God manifested through the rainbow. We have seen that as well. 
Um, and this isn't actually necessarily grace provision, although to some degree the rainbow is a grace provision when we see it, a reminder of his character. Um, but through the, the rainbow we see seven attributes of God that he has given. Love, omnipresence, omniscience, eternalness, righteousness, omnipotence, and sovereignty. <clears throat> so we've looked at these things and have studied these things in recent sessions, uh, and we're still establishing that grace provision concept through these things. So when we look at what God's provided in verse 17, uh, specifically, and then with his character, we're identifying some of the grace provision of God to educate and provide believers with the mechanics necessary to assimilate to the standard of cosmos theos. In other words, to assimilate to God's plan or blueprints for his world system. That standard, uh, you can almost just switch that out with righteousness. Um, God gives grace provision, or God provides things in his grace uh, so that we can assimilate to the standard that he has set up in righteousness. So grace provision then refers to anything which has been given by God to humanity or believers for the purpose of his will towards either party. Anything that God has granted us to be used as a resource or to be, um, well, any of it is a resource. So anything God has given us to be used as a resource is a part of that, whether it's towards salvation, towards our walk, towards our physical livelihood, uh, jobs, food, all that. It's grace provision of God. When we recognize that everything that we have has been given to us by God, um, and those things specifically I'm talking about are those which are good things given and perfect gifts. We recognize that those things come from God. We're able to recognize Him to be the loving, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, righteous, sovereign, and omnipresent Lord. Uh, just one of those things. As we're contrasting between sin and death, we're going to be looking tonight at righteousness and life. And uh, so this term grace provision uh, should help us from this point on in understanding what God provides is because of His grace, which is the result of His love for us. <clears throat> Further examples of grace provision are, one, the cross of Calvary, two, food on the table, three, the Holy Spirit, four, resources necessary for accomplishing His will, five, rebound, the confession of known sin, six, fellowship restoration, seven, His revealed word, logos of truth. Those are just seven examples. There's way more than that. It's innumerable probably because it's more... Every day we each get different things. But understand the term grace provision is going to be critical to understanding future lessons in the Word of God. Grace provision then, again, is defined as anything that refers to, or grace provision refers to anything which has been given by God to humanity or believers for the purpose of His will toward either party. So by the grace provision of God, we have salvation through Jesus Christ, if that makes sense. James 1.18 continues in providing the mechanics necessary for defeating the testation which believers encounter during their time walking upon earth. James provides a reminder to the diaspora through verse 18 of God's righteous work in their lives to bring about spiritual life. In doing so, James identifies God's will towards, bring, towards bringing the individual to spiritual rebirth. <clears throat> Any questions on the grace provision part? It's just a term that if you hear me use it, I'm talking about those things that God has provided, whatever it may be in the context of which we're talking. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. We will get pretty much the majority of that first line done tonight. <clears throat> in the exercise of His will is the beginning of verse 18, and it's translated from the aorist passive participle, Buletheis, 
As a participle, balethais is a hybrid between the Koine Greek adjective and verb. It therefore possesses a few grammatical qualities of each, the adjective and the verb. Although it is a hybrid between the adjective and the verb, the participle's function is either descriptive in nature or verbal in nature. So it's either going to describe the noun or it's going to describe a noun um, as a certain classification or it's going to describe the noun by an action. Um, so the believing oftentimes is a phrase used in scripture to refer to those who are believers. Um, scripture will say the believing ones have eternal life, um, that kind of thing. That's a participle that's actually describing a group of people by the action that they've accomplished of believing. <clears throat> So as a hybrid between the adjective and the verb, the participle either describes a noun in a certain way or describes an action as taking place in a certain way. The New American Standard has translated bulathais as in the exercise of his will. This is largely because of bulathais being a verbal participle. That is, it acts as a verbal uh, participle. So rather than describing the noun, it's describing uh, what actually happened. However, translating bulathais is as in the presence, or as in the ex exercise of his will, excuse me, is not a literal translation, although it does render a close meaning. All that to say is it's not a word-for-word -word translation. It, it, they're trying to convey the meaning of the word in the New American Standard, and it's not that far off. It's just not literal, and so we're going for literal because we're looking at the Bible from a literal, grammatical, historical usage. So we're going to delve into that tonight. Bulathais is from the verb bulamai, and it refers to the action of willing something to occur. Koine Greek identifies bulamai as being a purposeful type of will occurring after consideration and planning has taken place. This is not an impulse purchase. This is a, I saved up for it, I planned it, I've got the timing, I'm going to go for it kind of thing. In fact, James had at his disposal another term for willing in Koine Greek, feline, but chose bulamai instead. The difference between the two words, both of which refer to the willing of an individual to accomplish something or behave in a specific manner, is identified in the moments leading up to the willing itself. Prior to willing, an individual either plans out their actions or responds to impulses. Such is the nature of the difference between bulamai and thelain, respectively. Bulamai is the planned, thought-out implementation of an individual's will. It is not impulsive by nature, and thelain is the impulsive, reactive implementation of an individual's will. Response and re respond and react are basically what we could say. Bulamai is a response kind of thing. You evaluate what needs to happen and then you act. React is the knee-jerk impulsive reaction. So both of these were available to James. Uh, <coughs> he chose Bulamai. And under the premise of James's usage of Bulamai as being inspired by God, the understanding James creates is that God planned out and considered thoughtfully what he has willed in verse 18 as opposed to merely reacting impulsively. Therefore, the understanding is created by James that God thoughtfully considered a plan which he carried out through his volition or will to accomplish some act or behavior. Such would be the mere verbal aspect of bulamai. But remember, it's a participle, not just a verb. So we just looked at bulamai, the verb, to plan out and consider thoughtfully and then enact through the volition. Now we're looking at that actually being a descriptor of what's happened. Since bulamai is found in its nominative masculine participle form, the identification being made is that of the action of bulamai already occurring. This is supported by the use of the aorist tense with bulathais, which identifies a point in time, typically one in the past. So bulamai is the root word from which bulathais is derived. 
you were to look it up in the dictionary, it would be bulamai. And the form that we have in our text is bulathais. <clears throat> we're going to give a summary of all the grammar and its effect upon bulathais before we actually investigate it all. So um, this first part here is the literal translation. We actually haven't supported yet with our study, but we will in the next few slides here. When coupled with the rest of its grammar, bulathais is literally translated, having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition in a point in time. You can see why they chose in the exercise of his will. <laughs> I think it, it lacks a little bit, but they chose that because it's what they wanted to choose. Through its nominative and masculine attributes, bulathais refers to a masculine being as its subject. Since no subject is clearly connected in verse 18, at least no named subject such as Todd or God or anything else, I mean person or object. Um, since nothing is purposefully named, we have to look at context to identify who or what the subject of Bulathais is. <clears throat> the previous context must be examined, therefore, in order to arrive at a proper understanding of who carried out the thoughtfully considered plan to which verse 18 refers. We arrive in verse 17 to find the contextual subject as the father of the lights. This is what we've already looked at, and so having been previously studied, we revealed that this was a reference to God the Father, the first personality of the triune Godhead Elohim. The masculine gender of Patros in verse 17 for Father, as well as the masculine gender of Bulathais from verse 18 provide the necessary grammatical substantiation. In other words, those have to match for us to know that we have a, an actual subject here, uh, the same subject being referred to in both locations. So the subject of Bulathais is God the Father, specifically. So the Father of Lights is the one Bulamayin. As such, God the Father is identified as having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition in a point in time. That may raise a question or furrow brow with the acted upon part. We, we will get there and you'll probably ask the question again. And it's a valid question, but there's a valid explanation for it as well. Uh, since God's sovereign and omnipotent, who can act upon him? What can act upon him? We'll explain that in just a, in, in like 20 slides. What is it James declares that God has carried out with his bulamayin? Which is fun to say. We'll find out in a few slides. Furthermore, as we look at bulathais, it's passive, which identifies that the subject was acted upon to perform the action of thoughtfully considering a plan and carrying it out. We're going to get right to that question first thing. Since God the Father is the subject, the indication is that he was acted upon to consider a plan and carry it out by something. The fall of man is the likely occurrence which candidates adequately as the event which, God or which caused God to consider and implement a plan, although it does not speak into his omniscience. In other words, at the fall of man, God came up with this plan. Now he's omniscient, right? So how can an omniscient God make plans? He already knows what he's going to do. He already knows what's going to happen. This is again an anthropomorphism that we understand scripture says that God did these things at certain times. That doesn't mean he didn't know about it. doesn't mean he already didn't have the plan. He didn't come up with a new plan. God knows all things. There cannot be a new plan, something he formerly had not known. So that provides a mental dilemma for our brains to get twisted over. Um, but what, I, I wanted to put a lot more, I guess, support for the fall of man being the cause upon God. The fall of man didn't act upon God. It basically is the cause that led God to enact or to carefully think out 
and plan out a plan and then enact it. It's not over him. It wasn't sovereign. It wasn't something he didn't see. He was omniscient. He is omniscient, and he therefore knew it was going to happen. But because of the fall of man, he needed to have a plan. And that's basically what the text is identifying. So the, the first form means the thoughtfully consider. And then when you add the, the suffix, that's what means to be acted upon the thoughtfully consider. Right. Yeah. It's in that last su The suffix of it is the Indians, like the conjugations in Spanish. Right. It changes who, uh, the number so of personal and stuff. Rather than the subject thoughtfully considering, it means the subject was acted upon thoughtfully considering. Right. In fact, bulamai, being the lexical form, the dictionary form, is in the first person active indicative. He really performed the action to thoughtfully consider and plan. So you change the endings, like you said, the suffix on it, and you can get different aspects of that. So that's where we actually get all of the grammar, is from the construction of the word. Some of it comes from the syntax, but usually when we talk masculine, genitive, cases, all that stuff's from the, the grammar of the word. <clears throat> okay, all grammar inspected, bulithais is literally translated as having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition in a point in time. In the words of the fall of man, God knew in order to carry out his plan for humanity as glorifying him, or the purpose for humanity to glorify him, he would need to provide a savior that would then allow spiritual rebirth so they could actually glorify him in their actions and operate righteously. So, in that sense, the fall of man acted upon God to start this thought towards considering a plan. Um, now, again, God's omniscient. So, how do we deal with, does that mean that the fall of man occurred and then God thought of the plan? Or, God knew the fall was going to occur, he already had the plan, he's always had the plan. It's again one of those mental mind warps that we have a hard time figuring out because we are not infinite. In a way, God yeah. The other, oh, and I should bring that up. The other uh, option that you could have is his character. Just like a loving God cannot, um, cannot choose not to create someone because of what they will do, because that's not love. Uh, as at least identified by the Bible, is if love is self-sacrificial, then and it's given regardless of the response it receives, then a person's actions wouldn't dictate. You guys following that? Yeah. Okay. I lost it. So, so in other words, if, if Hitler, if God knew Hitler was going to do what he did, God being loving wouldn't just kill him. He has to give Hitler the choice, the chance to choose what he's going to do. And yet, but God being righteous means that he holds him to a standard that he holds all of us to as well. Uh, you may have actually been asked at some point, and if not yet, you may. Um, you may be asked what an ethical decision would have been with abortion and Hitler. He apparently, according to a rumored story, uh, as far as I can I, I, as far as I can tell, I haven't documented it at all, um, Hitler's mother almost went for an abortion and then the doctor talked her out of it. Well, people have said, well, if they'd gotten the abortion, look at all of it would, would have saved. Well, it still defies love. Uh, God may have allowed it, but a loving being does not <clears throat> and will not act upon a, a person's volition. He may change circumstances, and that's clearly what we see in, in God's actions. Go ahead, James. But he would, I guess I don't know what you mean. He won't act upon their volition, meaning he wouldn't. He won't cross the volition he set up. I see. Meaning, right. I'll still have the ability to make the choice, uh -huh. 
But like, say I want to commit suicide. I don't, just for the record. All right? I'm very happy with the way things are right now. Yeah. Talk to me in about two weeks after Riley's here, hopefully, and we'll see when it goes on. No. But what if you are not? Then you, <laughs> you shan't. Yeah. It's a good term for it. Um, but if I wanted to kill myself, I put the gun to my head, pull the trigger. That's my volitional choice. God won't stop me from pulling the trigger. He may cause an earthquake to knock the gun out before I pull the trigger. He may cause the bullet to skim around my head. That's happened before. He may have caused the gun to jam. So God always, and if you look at Scripture, He never overrules the volition of an individual. He never interferes with the choice, the individual, the, the individual, individual's ability to make a choice. What He so, does do is He directs circumstances and causes circumstances so that you can make the choice, but it's not going to matter. That kind of thing. Make sense? So, I don't remember the guy's name, but when the donkey... Balaam. Right. So, God did a lot to stop him, but ultimately he didn't. He didn't, he didn't change the decision Balaam made for himself. No. Yeah. But the circumstances became very... Yes. Yeah. And a loving God cannot interfere with the choice of an individual. He has to let us make our choice. He can interfere with the consequence or the outcomes of it, um, and will, um, because he's righteous and loving. But being loving and righteous, he cannot interfere with our choice that he gave us to begin with. You know, just so, one of those things. Go ahead. So we're talking about the Hitler and the abortion. So if there's a particular example, so what you're saying is, in the times in the Old Testament, God punished. He was punishing for past deeds, not limiting the potential for the future. Right. He always judges what has been volitionally accomplished, not what is going to be volitionally accomplished. Like the, the judgment of the Canaanites. Why was Israel enslaved in Egypt for 400 years? Because the land, the people in, the Can in Canaan, the Amorites, their iniquity hadn't been made full yet. It hadn't come to that completion. But when it reached that point, God used the Israelites to judge the Canaanites. The Amorites, Canaanites, the same people. Right, he used Babylon to judge everybody else and continue to judge Babylon. Right. And then all throughout history, all of Israel's nations judging them and them judging nations and all that stuff. <clears throat> so yeah, it, he won't hold us accountable for things that we haven't done yet. Does that make sense? He'll know that we're going to do them, but they're not, we're not accountable until we do them. We haven't transgressed his law until we've volitionally accomplished them. And if we're saved, it doesn't matter because our sin is charged to Christ, all of it, past, present, or future. And its penalty is paid for, so all we have to do is restore our fellowship through rebound. We're good. We're good. Doesn't give you license. What's that? Sure. Is that a quote? Oh no, I thought you were quoting someone. I was like, okay. No, judge, judgment is for, yeah, judgment is for the past, grace is for the past and future. Yeah. We're not judged for future acts. Until we've accomplished those acts, we can't be held liable for them yet. That's not a just God. It's like Minority Report, which I don't recommend seeing. It was a weird movie. Yeah, I don't recommend it. But, <clears throat> all that to say, because of the fall of man, rather than not creating man because God knew that we would sin and fall, 
he gave us volition, gave us a spirit, and then came up with a plan, or had the plan, depending on how you want to term that, term that anthropomorphism for an omniscient God, that would allow us to, once again, be spiritually born by our own choice again. So the plan here that is being referred to by Bula Thais in verse 18 of James chapter 1 is the reference to the cross and the empty tomb, the restoration of man to spiritual life, to eternal life with him. Interestingly enough, James uses the same word in verse 18 that he had previously used in verse 15 concerning the work of testation in the individual's life to identify what it was God had previously thoughtfully considered and carried out through his volition. That is a beefy sentence. Or maybe just more confusing than beefy, I guess. But ultimately, in verse 18 and verse 15, we have the same, same root word for this phrase, he brought us forth, in verse 18. And in verse 15, the second part that we studied, it was also translated as brought forth. And this is the slide that we have there. In verse 15, the second part, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Apakuai is the form we have in verse 15. Um, and the object it brings forth is death. But apakuai is an active verb from apakuo, which means to give birth to. This is the birthing of something. Now, I didn't note this, I don't think, when we studied verse 15, so I'll note it now. That the emphasis with apakuo is that something has been given birth to. It's not the process of giving birth. It's the end result, that something has been begot or born. Begotten is in King James Version. So keep that in mind as we look at what is what God has begot from his will, from his volition that he's already thought out and carefully um, thought and planned for salvation. <clears throat> so the phrase, he brought us forth, Sorry. The phrase he brought us forth is from apakuasin, which is the verb form of apakuo uh, with different grammatical construction. And it's used in verse 18. Give credit to the New American Standard translators for translating it the same way both times. They don't always do that. In fact, most translations don't translate the same word the same way, but they gave it the same basic definition. Um, he brought us forth, however, brought comes from tiktai rather than apakuo, so it should really be he gave birth to. <clears throat> the us part in there, I don't know if you can tell on the slide, but it's a little bit different color. Uh, I tried to grayscale it out. It's a little bolder, or a little, little quieter on my page than it is on the screen up there. Uh, but that word us is not necessarily from apakuasin. Uh, it's actually a different word that we're coming up to, hey moss. Uh, I didn't want to get rid of it because it would be a little more confusing, but just note that that word us right there doesn't come from the word that's above it in Greek, apokuasin. So in verse 18, James uses the same word with different grammatical construction to explain what God gave birth to. In doing so, James establishes a contrastive example that sin gives birth to death, but God gives birth to something else. This is brilliant. I love when God does this. When I'm not expecting to see something, and it's just like, hey, there it is. I'm like, wow. So what... <clears throat> That last part there about the contrastive example is that in verse 14 and 15, we have the identification of the process of testation. And then in 16, 17, and 18 now, we're looking at this how to defeat the test, the mechanics. And this is a reminder of what God has done in verse 18. So James is telling the diaspora, hey, this is what God has done. He brought us forth. He gave birth to you, the diaspora, the believers, uh, believing Jews scattered around the, the globe. He, brought, he gave birth to you, and that birth is for spiritual life or eternal life. Um, so we've got the contrast here contextually between spiritual death from sin 
or even positional death from sin, whether that spiritual death is um, the death of the spirit at the fall, the imputed death of the spirit at birth, or the lack of the spirit, I should say, at birth, or whether it's the temporal or what we call experiential death of the spirit for a believer who's now operating outside of the spirit rather than dying, with, or rather than having a spirit dying. You guys follow that? Okay. This gives birth to death part in James one fifteen b is <clears throat> it, it's not exclusively a reference to the spiritual death from the fall, the imputation of, or the lack of a spirit at birth of all humans, physical birth, I mean, or the temporal or experiential death because of a believer's sin. It's called, when a believer sins, we talk about rebound, right? Before rebound, we're in temporal death. We're operating as if our spirit is dead. It's not dead. It's still alive within us. We don't need to rebirth the spirit according to scripture. But we're operating outside of it or experientially outside of spiritual life and therefore operating spiritual death. Um, as if we were spiritually dead, which we are not. So that's termed temporal or experiential death. Positional death is prior to salvation, the lack of a human spirit at all. So when you sin, or when you accept Christ as your Savior, I should say, we start with that. Your position is in Christ, which is now in life. That's secured. That's taken care of. But your experience now is either in life or in death. You're either in that eternal life that you have, operating within it, under the cosmos theos laws, or you're operating under the cosmos diabolos laws of this world system. So temporally, you're either in, operating in spirit or in life, or you're operating in sin or in death. But your spirit is still alive. You follow that? Okay. We've talked about that a few times, I think, already before. So we're supposed to about positional or <clears throat> That's That was what started this whole diatribe to begin with. It's both. It's because it, it deals with the principle in that specifically in that example in that context we're looking at it's it's experiential predominantly it seems like because it's talking to believers who are not stopping this process from happening and so it's an experiential thing because they already have a, a birth spirit but because of the participles that are in there it also establishes the principle that sin gives birth to death whether it's positional or experiential. So you're talking about the relationship between sin and death, right? More than Right, so, the, yeah, and the focus then is, is really neither on positional or experiential, but more on the principle, the law, that sin gives birth to death. For believers in that context, talking to the diaspora, it was experiential. For non-believers, like in Romans 6.23, 3.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In that passage, the same principle, but the, the emphasis is more on positional because it's talking to unbelievers. <clears throat> so the same thing happens here, actually, with this birth concept. God giving birth to something else. <clears throat> in its usage in verse 18, apokuasin identifies that God really performed the action in a point in time to give birth to something. That something is identified by James as hamas. Interestingly enough, it's not life, like zoase, uh, which we would expect if we we're talking about the birth of a human spirit for the first time. Um, and it's not reference to temporal uh, or to experiential life in the spirit either. Now, this is saying specifically, and in fact, the accusative case used with Hamas 
actually puts boundaries around, like it put a fence around your, your property that says this is what was given birth to. Us, the diaspora, he gave birth to us through this plan that he established. <clears throat> is Isaiah referring to the compositional birth of being transferred from death to life or the temporal back and forth? As you in, in the same way that verse 15 dealt with the abstract, which applied to both positional and experiential, we have the same thing going on here. It's, it's actually that part of that brilliant thing that I was talking about is the, the contrast between the diaspora's experiential death with sin and the diaspora's experiential life through rebound and that kind of thing, going back and forth. Uh, I shouldn't say that kind of thing. Through rebound, really, is all it comes down to. Um, it, it's understand that God has a plan. Other stuff like Other that. stuff like rebound, you know? <laughs> rebound and everything else like it. <clears throat> so it's, it's the same system we have with James 1.15b imposed here on James 1.18a. Yeah, they're, they're very much parallels and contrasting each other. Um, now, with that said, again, this is referencing the diaspora. So he's, he's emphasizing, first and foremost, that they were made alive, they were given birth to, through the positional truth of God's word. Through the concept that God set this plan up to restore humanity to spiritual birth because of the fall. So that's talking about cross and Calvary. And because of that, also, you have the birth of a spiritual life. You have eternal life and spiritual life. You can't have one without the other. And if you have spiritual life, you've got eternal life. If you don't have spiritual life, you don't have eternal life. If you have eternal life, you have a spiritual life. I thought spiritual life is for believers. Yeah. And people are compelled to live eternally. They live eternally, but it's not eternal life, it's eternal death. And that they understand that comes in from the, the difference between his differences between Thanaton and Zoase. So eternal life isn't actual existence. Right, eternal life is, it, actually the phrase refers to the quality of life that is existence in eternity for those who have eternal life. Right, so life isn't meaning existence, it's meaning right. existence and eternal death is meaning that existence. Right, yeah, eternal dying state or eternal living state. Yeah, eternity refers to that time period, definitely, yeah. <clears throat> Good clarification. Amos is the accusative first person plural of ego. Ego means I, and is the first person singular personal pronoun of Koine Greek. Since Hamas is the plural version of ego, it literally means we. It's translated as us um, to help with some of the English understanding. You can translate that way too. That's part of the second person or the first person plural. So here the inclusion is that James is talking about himself and the diaspora, us. God gave birth to us through this plan that he carefully or that he considered and thought out and then it enacted. <clears throat> so the usage of Hamas here is in the accusative case, again putting boundaries around the diaspora and James, because that's who he's talking to specifically. That doesn't mean it's exclusive of everyone else. All those who choose to believe upon the salvation plan that the diaspora believed upon will be saved also. So, but in the context of what we're talking about, he's talking specifically to the diaspora. So that's where we get the us concept. You can just transfer that right to you because you, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, it is also a part of you. You are in that boundary. <clears throat> because of the accusative case, Hamas identifies that we are given birth to by God. This is translated into English as us for the sake of English grammar. Having completed the participle main verb and its direct object, there is an important distinction which needs to be identified before proceeding. This is where it gets even more confusing than it already has been um, because of apparently my, 
my own doing. But this is an important thing to, to know that we can build off of for the rest of the verse. <clears throat> and it begins with understanding the Aorist participle tense in Koine Greek. We've, we've seen this before. We've done this before. In fact, I, had, I took these three next three slides and copied them and then edited them to be contextually accurate. But this is something we've already looked at. We're going to emphasize again. The tense of the participle expresses when expresses when the action of the participle occurs in relationship to the action of the main verb. Okay, so you've got an aorist participle and a main verb. Main verb is dependent upon the timing of the aorist participle. That's what we're getting at. It's either antecedent, simultaneous, or subsequent. So the participle occurs either prior to, at the same time, or after the action of the main verb. This is critical, and, and you see this a lot in understanding salvation concepts. What takes place when? Is believing first and then spiritual rebirth? Is spiritual birth first and then believing? You can see that clearly through these participles, and the tense is used with the participle and the main verb. <coughs> Excuse me. When an aorist participle is used as a verbal participle, which is the case that we have in James 1.18, it identifies antecedent action in relationship to the main verb. That means it is accomplished prior to the action of the main verb. Our participle in the New American Standard was translated in the exercise of his will. He brought, uh, or he, in the exercise of his will. I forgot that had little animation on it. The main verb we have is he brought us forth by the word of truth. Or he brought, a, he brought forth, which we've translated as he gives birth to. Our direct object, the thing which is given birth to, is us. Specifically the diaspora, not us. And when I use us, I'm talking about the diaspora. It is us by default, but it's just remember the diaspora there. <coughs> so our aorist participle is from bulethais and is that in the exercise of his will part. The main verb is he gives birth to, and the New American Standard has it as he brought forth. The direct object that was brought forth or given birth to is us. Now the agent, the indirect object, is by the word of truth. We're not going to get there tonight. That's why I didn't put it up there. But just so you know, that's the thing. That's how. And that's why I didn't put the indirect object slide up there. Yeah, it's up there. Yeah. I want. I wanted to keep the rest of it up there. Okay. All right. So. So here's our aorist participle bulethais, which we've translated. Literally, as having thoughtfully considered a plan and carried it out through a volition and a point in time. Now, you'll notice that's a little shortened. The first, the, the expanded literal translation of Bulathais is having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through a volition and a point in time. I need the space. So I took out the acted upon part. We'll put it back in a few slides. Don't worry. It's still going to be there. We don't want to miss any of that. So that's our aorist participle. And then the main verb, apokuasin, means to give birth to. So according to Greek grammar, the aorist participle, bulethais, is accomplished prior to the main verb's action. So before the giving birth, this thoughtful consideration of a plan and carrying out of the plan had to be accomplished. In fact, what it's saying with this grammar is that that was accomplished. God thought of a plan, he carefully considered it, he put it into effect through his volition, and it is a finished thing, the plan has been enacted, it's done, and now he can give birth. <clears throat> you too? <laughs> we interrupt this study to go to the hospital. No. <clears throat> so what this means is that God came up with a plan and then carried it out prior to giving birth to the diaspora. In other words, the diaspora couldn't 
be reborn spiritually without this plan having been thought out and put into effect. The context here being in contrast to the spiritual death of the process of testation requires then that this is a reference to spiritual birth rather than physical birth. Uh, something we needed to address before we really went on farther is that concept that this is definitely not a reference to physical birth. God didn't put into a carefully considered and planned the physical birth of humanity. No, because of the fall, he carefully considered and put into effect how he would restore humanity to the trichotomous being that he created them to be originally. So this is a reference to spiritual birth rather than physical birth. This being the case, James identifies that God had already thoughtfully considered what to do regarding humanity's spiritual death of the fall. The bringing forth of a Messiah would allow for the rebirthing of humanity's spirit, and so God carried out his plan through his volition. Once God's plan was completed, the diaspora was given spiritual birth and thus eternal life by placing dependency upon God's plan. The identification is twofold. Now, note before we get to the twofold identification there, Note that the diaspora was given spiritual birth doesn't mean that it was just transferred to them. Okay? They still had to go through the plan, which was what? The death of a Messiah who had lived a sinless life, a righteous life, the resurrection of him three days and three nights later, and then the belief upon him. Without that belief upon him, that's part of the plan. Without that belief upon him, eternal life isn't given according to God's word. So the identification of God's plan it's twofold. One, it was carried out prior to the diaspora's spiritual rebirth. Again, we're talking specifically the diaspora. Where, where, when were the diaspora alive physically? When they were physically alive after the cross or during the same time as the cross. And <clears throat> their spiritual rebirth occurred after the cross. They saw the cross. They saw Jesus' death and resurrection. They heard about it. Uh, they came up with it all in their delusional selves and decided this is a good thing to believe. However you want to term it, this, their rebirth spiritually came after the death and resurrection of Christ after the plan was carried out. Number two, God's plan was carried out prior to the diaspora's eternal life. Now, they basically say the same thing, but I do want to create that distinction between eternal life and spiritual, spiritual rebirth. Without spiritual rebirth, there is no eternal life. They're not the same thing. But usually when you see spiritual life, you see eternal life because spiritual life is operation now in this time on earth in the same type of and quality of life that we have that's been given to us positionally in Christ and that we will have experientially in the future in eternity. There's a quality of life to it. In fact, Zoase refers to the utmost quality of life that's possible. We have the spiritual concepts that overrule all human qualities of life. Cosmos Theos, if everything works the way it was designed, there's going to be a huge quality of life upgrade there. There's no conflict. There's no chance for pain. Nothing if everything's working the way it was designed to. So, when we talk about eternal life, we're talking about the life that we have in eternity because of Christ. Without God's plan being carried out, that eternal life isn't there. Eternal death in the lake of fire is. So we're dealing with spiritual rebirth and eternal life, both the same concepts. Just like with James 1.15, we're dealing with positional experiential. We're dealing with that same concept here because we're dealing with a participle that is a law of cosmos theos that identifies that God's plan had to be completed first before rebirth was made available. The expand translation of the first three words of James 1.18 reads as follows. Having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it through, carry it out through volition, he gave birth to us. Again, God considered the plan, carried it out, and then upon its completion, he gave birth to those Jews who believed. That belief, again, being a part and a critical part of God's plan for humanity's rebirth. Without the belief, the rebirth doesn't occur. 
The following principles are then established from this glance into verse 18. Number one, God thoughtfully considered a plan to rebirth humanity to spiritual life. This we have identified as being because of the fall of man occurring, whether just in God's omniscience he knew it would, and so he just had the plan already ready to go, um, or whether when the fall of man did occur, he came up with this concept that he'd already known. However you want to term that, it's up to you. Number two, the diaspora, <clears throat> who have placed personal dependency upon God's plan for spiritual life, were born again by God because of their belief in his plan, which had been accomplished prior to their being birthed. The plan had to be accomplished, the Messiah had to be given, before the diaspora could believe upon it. Largely due to the fact that they weren't alive prior to Christ. Well, or prior to him coming, I guess. They could be alive prior to Christ. And just that time frame transition. <clears throat> that said, God alone gives life, but without the death and resurrection of Christ, in accordance with his plan, life could not be given. God's plan requires the personal implementation of God's given volition to depend upon his plan for salvation. Upon belief, God gives spiritual birth to those who believe. This grants them eternal life, and that's, that, again, that spiritual rebirth concept. There is a process by which the believer comes to believe, which is identified in verse 18 as well, but we'll need to wait until another study opportunity. And that is as far as we get tonight. Any questions on the last slides? Or on any of the slides or any of the things we've discussed? Mm-hmm.